G'day, welcome along to another sermon from Good News Christian Church in Howrah, Tasmania, Australia. I'm Bernard Kane, I'm the pastor. Get in touch sometime at goodnewschristianchurch.org or why not come by one Sunday morning. For now, here's the sermon. 1 Corinthians 8 verse 1, now about food sacrifice to idols. 1 Corinthians 8 verse 4, so then about eating food sacrifice to idols. And 1 Corinthians 8 verse 10, for if anyone with a weak conscience sees you who have this knowledge eating in an idol's temple. Uh, Now, to modern ears, our modern ears, uh, I suspect we hear two things. Number one, this chapter sounds thoroughly irrelevant (laughs) to my life. Why? Because I've never even been tempted, uh, you know, godly Christian that I am, uh, of eating food sacrificed uh, to idols. It has never crossed my mind. Uh, that has never been a particular temptation for me. In fact, I don't even particularly like those um, Buddha statues. My backyard aesthetic is a little bit more um, uh, European cottage. Uh, I'm being a little bit generous of my own garden, you'll understand, those of you who have seen my garden. Nevertheless, the Buddha statues wouldn't even really fit in my garden, so I don't even particularly uh, want one of them. So number one, I'm thinking this, uh, surely this is irrelevant, uh, isn't it? Number two, what kind of Christian eats in the temple of an idol anyway? Um, The Corinthians must surely be deeply confused. Even I can see that. Uh, Such a a silly, simple mistake. Surely we'll be able to iron this out uh, nice and smoothly. Folks, whether that's you or not, and your sort of initial response to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, let's pray. I think there's some marvellous stuff in here for us. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, we thank you and we praise you that you have revealed who you are to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, for that liberating truth that we've encountered there in the good news of Jesus. We thank you for unlocking spiritual reality to us by your Spirit, uh, truths about matters that we could never have figured out for ourselves. How could we begin to figure out the God of the universe But God, we ask now that you'd continue to help us to massage that gospel truth out into the grit of real life. We ask for your help in this, uh, not just as an intellectual exercise this morning, but also at the level of our desire and the level of our will, our decision-making. May we desire that which is good, our God. May we decide with your help to do that which glorifies you, in gratitude, in response to the gospel. And we ask for your help to that very end now as we turn to this passage of your good word to us. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. So there are three contexts in which people ate food that had been offered to idols. Uh, This was a really helpful little quote that I came across, just framing the Corinthian situation. I hope it's helpful to you. Let's start with it. There are three contexts in which people ate food that had been offered to idols. Celebrations held in dining halls, firstly, attached to pagan temples. Uh, Celebrations held in dining halls attached to pagan temples would have served food that had been offered to the God of the temple as patron of the event. 
whether they were primarily religious or social events. All right, so there's number one, celebrations held in dining halls that was sort of an annex to the temple itself where the food would have been offered. Uh, It was also common, secondly, for food eaten at a dinner in the private home of a pagan neighbour. In the private home of a pagan neighbour to be offered to a God whose presence and patronage were acknowledged by the host. That makes sense, doesn't it? So if your friends come to your house, very likely, uh, depends on the friend, I suppose, but very likely you give thanks to God for the food that you've received. Well, in a similar way, if you had a pagan neighbour and you went to their house, or they might well sacrifice the food to their God before eating. Okay, so there's the second instance. And thirdly, much of the food sold in the meat market, sold in the meat market, would have been sacrificed to an idol before finding its way to the market. And so they conclude, as it turns out, a large percentage of the meat available for consumption would have been previously offered to an idol. So what's a realistic... Let's uh, let's think of a case here. Uh, it's your brother-in-law's birthday party, let's say. Does this sound a bit more realistic? Your brother-in-law's birthday party. And he happens to be a pagan. Um, you, of course, are a, a Christian. And the father-in-law, so his dad throws a party. Maybe it's a big birthday, maybe it's a 40th birthday party. And the father-in-law, he's a family-minded man, uh, so he throws this big party for the extended uh, family. A really generous gesture. So where do they hold it? Where's a big enough venue? Down there in Corinth? Well, at the temple, to one of the relevant gods, perhaps the relevant one to whatever situation is going on in life at the time, perhaps a fertility uh, kind of God, maybe they're trying to have a baby at the moment, or a harvest God, maybe it's that time of year, or perhaps a a God of war, maybe the political situation or the social situation at the time. So your father-in-law, you see, has come to your house, walked down the road to your house to eyeball you, to personally invite you to his son's 40th birthday party, this celebration. Come to the temple for a meal. I guess where I want us to begin is, I don't think we're dealing with poor old muddle-headed ancients that we've, in our wisdom, (laughs) figured out all the answers to the conundrums. I don't think we're dealing with muddle-headed ancients who who had failed to grasp that really there's only one God. And what's more, I'm not sure if you noticed this on the way through 1 Corinthians 8, I suspect that idolatry proper isn't even the issue that Paul is particularly dealing with in this chapter. He will come chapter 10, we'll get to that in a few weeks' time, but not here. So here's the question for us, as we, I, I think we should have in mind as we come to 1 Corinthians 8, are there situations in life today where Christians find themselves, find ourselves wooed into patterns of behaviour, drawn down a path in life, which should at least raise some serious moral questions for us, which deserve serious moral contemplation, that ought to get us at least thinking, perhaps even things that you do regularly, or that all the people around you do regularly, but it just makes you wonder, should a Christian even do that? Um, let's think of a couple of examples. Some Christians, of course, uh, feel free to uh, watch Game of Thrones or read Fifty Shades of Grey or play GTA on their computer or listen to some of the more, shall we say, anti-God kind of end of um, hip-hop or metal or uh, whatever. Others wouldn't touch any of that stuff. 
Um, some Christians feel free to visit Mona and take part in the various festivals around our city, uh, visit every installation, participate uh, even in whatever parade of sort of, you know, it happens every year at Dark Mofo, doesn't it? It, it always hits the papers. Some um, parade of effigy burning, kind of sin purging, uh, guilt eradicating um, uh, thing that happens down there at the Dark Park each winter. Others couldn't bring themselves to go. Some Christians freely do uh, yoga, um, even with even the kind of more spiritual end of yoga, with that spiritual instructor who seems to be as spiritual as she is flexible, uh, or they'll have Reiki done on their back, nothing else seems to work, or they learn that meditation course online, but frankly the best one is the kind of more spiritually involved one. Some Christians would gladly attend their Nepalese friend's Hindu wedding, even though a Nepalese wedding, a Hindu wedding at least, is a little bit more involved in terms of what the congregation has to do and they always involve sacrifice uh, to one or some of the many Hindu gods. Some Christians would gladly accept not just an invitation to a, a gay ceremony, and I suppose the day may well be coming soon where it's not just a ceremony but it's a wedding ceremony, and wouldn't just accept an invitation but would gladly lead in prayer if they were asked in that kind of a setting. Some Christians, of course, have marched in the Mardi Gras alongside their gay friend, not so much as a statement of support of homosexuality per se, but as a show of generosity and friendship and solidarity with their friend, do you see? Um, some Christians are quite okay, uh, not just with piercings and, and tattoos and but with a whole host of body augmentations and uh, expensive surgeries, you know, not just, you know, it could be nose straightening or, or breast augmentation, whereas others, you see, others are uneasy about the amount of money they spend on hair dye. Uh, others uh, feel that getting a couple of injections of lip filler, that would be going a bridge too far, you see. Some Christians play poker with their mates regularly, it's the weekly unwind. Um, indeed, did you know this? Some Christian ministries are entirely bankrolled through Christians professionally gambling. Others won't even join the stakes at the office Melbourne Cup Day pool. Some Christians seem to roll up to every interfaith, every multi-faith uh, prayer vigil in times of national tragedy or grief. Others would not darken the door. Uh, brothers and sisters, I think 1 Corinthians 8 has three pieces of advice that are relevant, as best I can tell, to every single one of those examples. Three pieces of advice. They aren't an easy answer to any of those issues, just as Paul, I think, doesn't treat idolatry proper, but he does help these Corinthian Christians uh, to think carefully about their conduct more broadly. Paul doesn't give a smackdown on idolatry, he won't even come close to doing that until chapter 10, uh, but he does give three questions for these Corinthian Christians to answer as they uh, come to this issue of food sacrifice to idols. Uh, let me give them to you. The first one is a little bit cheekily named. Uh, the first question for them is, are you a know-it-all narcissist? <laughs> you know Narciss Narcissus the, uh, from Greek mythology? Um, he didn't fall in love with the, the nymph, he fell in love with what? his own reflection in a pool, right? So the definition of self-absorbed, okay? Um, I get the impression here, let's start in 1 Corinthians 8 verse 1, I get the impression Paul writes these words for a group of people who are really quite self-absorbed, 
and that's the point that I'm making. They reckon they know a thing or two about idolatry. And so this is a word for us, I think, for any of us who are perhaps a little bit more permissive about things. We'll give ourselves permission to do a little bit more than our perhaps tender-conscienced brothers or sisters in Christ would dare to do. Let's have a look together. 1 Corinthians 8 verse 1. Now, about food sacrificed to idols, we know that we all possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. The man who thinks he knows something doesn't yet know as he ought to know, but the man who loves God is known by God. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one, for even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. And so are you, verse 2, the man who thinks he knows something? You know, you're so strong, you Corinthians. You're so unaffected, uh, even by idolatry. You can do that. You can see that. You can watch this. You can experience that. Well, Paul is saying, just go back a step, are you, first of all, a lover of the Lord or are you a know-it-all narcissist in the end? Um, Are you obsessed with the Lord, really and truly, is the most important thing in your life, verse 3, that you are known by God? Do you count your every blessing in life as coming from God the Father, your every breath is coming to you through the Lord Jesus Christ? Or are you the biggest thing in your world and is that the sole compass by which you make your bold social decisions? Do you see? Uh, Perhaps to make it a little bit less combative, um, maybe Paul's saying something like this, if you feel so socially squeezed into these idol temple meal events, I want to remind you, there is a bigger reality in your life than your father-in-law knocking at the door and eyeballing you and inviting you to your brother-in-law's birthday at the idol temple. Do you know that bigger reality? That's question number one, are you a know-it-all narcissist or a lover of the Lord? Question number two, are you crushing weak consciences? Uh, So this is verses seven and eight, let's take a look there. Could we just notice verses 7 and 8, because when you're talking about behaviour that's a little bit contentious for Christians, uh, I think often we can think in terms of, well, there's, there's the permissive Christian who will allow themselves to do X, Y or Z, and then there's the kind of, this is the Christian who criticises them for that. Is that who Paul's got in mind here? Is that, is that who Paul is? Is Paul concerned for the tut-tutting, um, uh, perhaps judgmental, um, uh, mature Christian who's criticising the more permissive Christian? Is that who he's got? I'm not sure that it is actually. Whose welfare is Paul looking out for in verses 7 and 8? Let's take a look. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, um, verse 7. But not everyone knows this, uh, referring to what we've just seen yeah, sure, there aren't real idols, there's one God and one Lord Jesus Christ, but not everyone knows this, verse 7, some people are still so accustomed to idols 
that when they eat such food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to an idol. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food doesn't bring us near to God. We know worse if we don't eat and know better if we do. Just take another look at verse 8 there with me, would you please? Why do you think he phrased verse 8 like that? Verse 8, but food does not bring us near to God. We're no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. Now, this is interesting. Uh, Tell me if you think I'm making too much of this. If Paul was only trying to protect the delicate, weak conscience, all right? Clearly, that's who he's got in mind, isn't it? With, uh, with the, the case that he has here. It, he's not caring for the welfare of the tut-tutting, mature, criticising Christian. He's caring for this weak and delicate conscience. But if he was only trying to address them, I think he'd say something like, like this, wouldn't he? Wouldn't he say, but food can't take you away from God? Food, whether it's offered to an idol or not, can't take you away from God. It can't hurt you to eat it. You're no worse off if you have. Don't worry about it. But instead, you see, he slips it around the other way. He flips it around and said, no, says, no, no, food doesn't bring you near to God. Well, who might be saying that it does? I'm just wondering, these strong Corinthians, as they see themselves, more permissive Corinthians, are they actually going a step further than just eating in idol temples themselves? Are they going a step further and trying to foist their behaviour on these weaker folks? Not just by example, but actively saying, you should come too. Are they trying to convince them, persuade them, manipulate them, cajole them perhaps, against their better judgment? Come on, you're free to eat in the temple, the, the idol food. You're free to eat this meat. In fact, you should do it. It'll be good for you. It'll be liberating for you and it'll bring you in your spiritual life closer to God ultimately. Uh, in other words, are the strong egging the weak on and in the process crushing their conscience, do you see? And so Paul says, settle down. Verse 8, food does not bring us near to God. We're no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. Now put that in modern terms uh, for a moment. If your classmates maybe uh, hassle you, Uh, bully you even just in subtle ways often bullying it's so subtle isn't it don't be such a baby come on it's fine Uh, to read this or to do that or play this or drink that or try this or smoke that or it doesn't hurt anyone there's no problem with in fact it'll be good Paul would say you go against your conscience that is a serious thing you lead someone else to go against their conscience well, it gets worse, actually. Keep, keep reading with me. Thirdly, whose side are you on anyway? Third question, whose side are you on anyway? 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9, be careful, however, that the exercise of your freedom doesn't become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone with a weak conscience sees you who have this knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't he be emboldened to eat what has been sacrificed to idols. So this weak brother for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against your brother in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother to fall into sin, I'll never eat meat again. 
so that I will not cause him to fall. I reckon the heart of the dynamic is this, isn't it? And verse 10 reveals it. It's not that the weak person will be egged on into doing the same thing exactly. I don't think that's the dynamic. They see you eating in the idol's temple and so suddenly they find themselves eating in the idol's temple. I don't think that's quite what verse 10 is suggesting. I think the heart of it is this. They see you eating at the temple and the next thing is, well, they'll knowingly buy meat from the market that's been sacrificed to idols. They see you doing that thing and then they'll find themselves doing the lesser thing, which maybe you're so strong you can't even see the problem with, but they're not so strong. For if anyone with a weak conscience, verse 10, sees you who have this knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't he be emboldened to eat what has been sacrificed to idols? And so this weak brother for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. And then Paul, Paul there, he hits them with Jesus, doesn't he? And he says, your actions destroy this believer's life. Christ was destroyed to save that believer's life. Whose side are you on anyway? When you sin, verse 12, against your brother in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother to fall into sin, I'll never eat meat again so that I will not cause him to fall. Brothers and sisters, as we move to a conclusion, I think 1 Corinthians 8, it, it puts a very delicate call on our lives as believers, doesn't it? Because it, it's delicate in the sense that it's not a call to do this or do that, thou shalt this or thou shalt not that. It's a call in all you do, like Christ, to use your strength to serve and to save from sin and not to wound the weak as you go around showing your strength. It's a much more subtle and delicate proposition, isn't it? Like Christ, to use your strength to serve and to save from sin, not to wound the weak as you show your strength. See, if the Lord Jesus, seeing me, seeing you, seeing us in our weakness and in our wayward ways off doing whatever we were doing in our lives. If the Lord Jesus, seeing us in our weakness, if he would sooner be destroyed, sooner have died, sooner have looked for our healing at the very cost of his own life, then how do our lives bear the marks of our Lord? Like Christ, use your strength to serve and to save from sin and not to wound the weak. So I think the question for Paul, well, the question for Paul isn't, should a Christian uh, watch Game of Thrones or march in the Mardi Gras or go to that multi-faith service or do the spiritual yoga retreat or have a flutter on the horses or play that first-person shooter? But rather, are you a man or a woman, a boy or a girl in Christ who would gladly lay it all aside because you see in the Lord Jesus that sin has destroyed enough already and so you will use your strength to serve and to save. That's more the principle of 1 Corinthians 8, isn't it? Draws us back, draws our eyes back to the pattern of Christ. Might not give you an easy answer to the sticky question of what should you do, but it gives you the framework for considering our brothers and sisters around us and the eternal consequences of our actions. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother to fall into sin, I'll never eat meat again. 
so that I will not cause him to fall. Can we pray together? Our Father in heaven, we really do marvel at your wisdom sometimes. Sometimes we want just easy, black and white, simple, clear um, answers, commands, so that we can obey them and feel good about obeying them or know when we've breached them. But in your wisdom, God, you've set before us a principle that draws us back to the very character of Christ. Father, we want to be men and women and boys and girls who aren't just caught up in our own world, aren't just caught up in our own heads, our own expression and self-interest, our own wealth or bodies or reputation amongst our friends. Father, teach us please to see the people around us, especially our brothers and sisters in Christ, not as somehow just people who contribute to our fulfilment, but as people destined for fullness. And please help us to strive for that in them. So God, we pray for ourselves, we pray for restraint, for self-discipline, we pray for wisdom. Would you please teach us as as a whole church community to invest in one another with care and concern so that we'd even be sensitive to know one another, know one another's consciences, know the effect that our behaviour has on our brother and sister, Uh, well enough that we might be able to minister in that way to each other. And God, may we be a community, please. Would you grow this in us increasingly that is swift to adapt and eager to welcome even the broken and the fragile and the sensitive who welcome opportunities to serve and to bless after the character and the conviction and even to the same cost as our Lord Jesus served us, the cost of his life. And in Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.